thank you, God, that we can rest uh, our hearts in your presence, that we can be at peace because you are powerful, sovereign, loving, trustworthy, and good. So we ask, Lord, just as uh, John wrote, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. God, we ask that you would bring to our body, soul, and spirit as we gather in your name under the word this morning, health, wholeness, healing, invitations, empowerment. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everybody doing? Great. Okay. Anyone have anything to say? (laughs) That's a dangerous question to ask. (laughs) Um, Have you ever uh, been traveling somewhere and, um, you know, it's late when you go to bed, you wake up in the morning and you, your eyes open and you see something you shouldn't see, like a wall. And you're thinking, the first question is, where the heck am I? Now, I don't know what might cause that to happen in your life, but for me, it might be traveling, and you're just kind of like, what, where am I, you know? It's really important to know where you are so you know how to go to the next place, right? So it's a part of what this short series on spiritual formation and stages of the journey of faith is about. It's, it's to help each one of us in the body to sort of see a map of the spiritual journey with that blazing thing that says, you are here, to, to know where you are. And I recognize, as I spoke the first week and have listened to, to Adam and to Ian, this is a strange series. It, it's just different than the normal vineyard thing that we do. I do have a Bible, so we're legal. Um, and I'll refer to it, what we say comes out of the Bible. But this is different. And I want to tell you why we're doing such a different series. As we gathered and prayed, our sense was it's really important for us as a body, to know individually where are we on our journey with God and to be able to look at others, not to pigeonhole them or label them, but to see where are we on this journey of faith as our soul progresses in God towards heaven in this life, where are we? And if you look through the scriptures and you look through Christian history, you'll see that there's a it's pretty understandable to see what types of stages the soul goes through as Jesus is forming us into his image. And so we thought it was important. So I I recognize it's hard, and I'm just issuing the challenge. Stay present. Something I say today is going to hit you like that, but there might be 34 minutes that you kind of go, whatever. That whatever is maybe where you were or where you're headed or where the person sitting next to you is right now. And so I want us all to listen as a body, not just where am I, where am I, where am I, but do I see other people in my family, my friends, my group, my ministry, and I can help them navigate this place with their soul. That's why we're doing what we're doing. There's an emotional, spiritual, and some very practical aspects of walking on this journey of faith as we become like Jesus. You want to know where you are. You want to know at any one point on your journey, what might hinder my journey? Because I want to keep following Jesus, but what might get in the way? Or at this specific stage in my life or my spiritual formation, what opportunities do I have? What invitations is God issuing to me so that I can continue to grow in faith? That's what this is about. It's about caring for your soul, your whole embodied self, 
in the midst of following Jesus and, and obeying his commands and taking the love and the power of God into the world in the way that he's given it to us. So we have been talking about these stages of faith. If you look on the screen, you'll see the, the six stages with the one sort of awkward moment called, we call the wall in the middle of it. And we've been talking about this progression of faith. It's not necessarily logical or linear, um, but we will probably all at some point hit these stages of faith as we keep following Jesus. So um, we talked about uh, the confidence in Christ stage, that place where at the very beginning you've come to Christ, you found your hope, your confidence in him, or maybe you came to Christ as a child and then recently or sometime in the past you recommitted your life to Christ. And it's just that renewed sense of, I know Jesus. He knows me. And like the, the, the world is new and you're just gobbling up everything you can about God. Uh, we talked about the second stage um, the, you've, where you've had some discipleship and some training. What's that one called? Help me. Help in discipleship. The, the stage where probably you're growing a lot, you're reading books, maybe you're in Bible studies, for me, this happened in college and in my first mission experience. Just lots of people pouring into my life and teaching me what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, this uh, third stage, responsibility in ministry, is quite honestly where many of us in this body, either sitting here or watching or listening later, it's where we are. We've, we've come to Christ, we know Christ, we've grown, and now we're beginning to use our gifts we're beginning to serve him, and maybe your service has gone up and down, but you're taking the responsibility that God has given you. You're obeying the call of God, and you're beginning to use your gifts, and you're seeing the Lord use you um, or, or work through you. You serve Jesus. You pray. Um, you share maybe what God's uh, said to you with other people. Maybe you lead in worship, or you lead a small group, or you volunteer with kids, or you do something with the food pantry. Um, you're on the prayer team. You teach a class. You're in a ministry area. I mean, the church and the kingdom move forward through people in this stage, empowered by God, gifted by God, released into the world with the good news of Jesus. I mean, this is, this is where the disciples were for so many, I think, of those three years where they're just grabbing everything Jesus says, and they're willing to take the risk, you know, even if it fails. <laughs> Aren't you glad the Bible shows us the disciples failing? Wouldn't it be kind of rough if you read the Bible and every time they, they tried something, it was perfect? He'd be like, I'm a loser. <laughs> How many of us say that anyway, right? Stop saying that. All right. Let's look in the Bible. This is what it looked like, this third stage, this responsibilities in ministry, at least for one person in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, turn to uh, 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. I'm going to talk pretty briefly through the story of Elijah. And I'm, I'm not going to read all of chapters 18 and 19, but I encourage you to do so, maybe in your studies this week. or. Um, 1 Kings 18, we only get introduced to Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 17. So we don't know a lot about his history in God, but clearly he's got a history in God. He knows the Lord because you see him in 17 and 18. He's hearing God. 
He's seeing God work. He's believing God. He's obeying God. I mean, dead people are coming back to life. A miraculous provision of food. Um, He's a dude. I mean, Elijah's a real dude in the kingdom. He's seeing fruit, miracles. um, And then he gets this call from God for a big showdown on Mount Carmel. Not our Carmel, the other Carmel. Maybe there should be some showdowns in Carmel. God wants to show himself in Carmel. That's a word just for some of you right there. So God invites Elijah into this um, sort of showdown in Mount Carmel. If you read through 1 Kings 18 and 19, you will see all this glorious stuff that happens in the life of Elijah as he takes on his calling, uses his gifts, trusts God, and God really uses him. In the beginning of 1 Kings 18, this is my sense, something begins to change. Um, God's still working, but uh, at one point in chapter 18, verse 22, it says, Elijah is now speaking to the people. So he's speaking to all these pagans, worshiping pagan gods. And he's about to, to proclaim the good news about the king of kings. And it says, Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Just random. Right out of the blue, he's like, I'm the only one left. Guess what? It's not true. It's not true. I mean, and later on, God will correct him. Like, dude, that's not right. So I'm not saying, you know, Elijah is lying on purpose, but something is happening in the heart of Elijah. It's this big, like, pronouncement. I'm the only one left. So I don't know. Just make of it whatever you want. 1 Kings 18 and verse 27. Now, um, they've done the big deal. They've poured, like, water on the altar. God, Elijah's going to call fire down from heaven to prove that God is God and Baal is not. So it's a big power encounter. And it says... Um, In uh, verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Actually, I mean, a better translation is mock. This does not sound very Christian. This does not sound very godly, but Elijah is mocking the prophets. If you read it, it's like, oh, you better take care of, uh, you know, go find your God. He's, um, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. There's a translation of the Bible that actually translates that as maybe he's on the potty. I'm just saying something's going on with Elijah. It seems to me a little weird. It's not my ministry style, but I don't know. So anyway, the drama ensues and God shows up and and the people respond. And there's this big power encounter. God shows himself to be who he is through the prophet Elijah, imperfect as he is. And um, then Elijah gets up and says, you know how I said there wouldn't be rain for three years and it happened? Rain's coming now. And then rain comes. And uh, Elijah is shown to be a prophet of God. God is shown to be who he is. So there's this great success. There's the power of God. There's this boldness. There's this faith. It's very public. And then, like literally a minute or a day later, we get to 1 Kings 19. And then here's what we hear. So you've, you've got the setup, right? And this is 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to read uh, 10 verses. 
So after the big power encounter, now Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Threats. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah after all this power, and here's what the Lord says. <laughs> I love this. Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your peoples to death with a sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's, it's fascinating that right here in the scriptures, we have a great man of God with all sorts of ministry success. And a minute, an hour, a day maybe, after all of that, you see him from one threat move into fear, doubt, escape, disengagement, avoidance, exhaustion, hiding, pride, self-pity, loneliness. He's seen the dead raised. He's seen food multiplied. He's seen miracles. He's defeated 450 demonic prophets. He's raised the dead. He's seen rain come back. I didn't mention this part, but he outruns a chariot in a 20-mile race. That's just cool to have on your LinkedIn account. God gives him victory, but Elijah ends up exhausted, defeated, self-focused, and depressed. So the question is, how does the great man of God, who had faith enough to ask God to send fire from heaven, turn into the man in a day who, I'm just saying it the way it is, can't have the faith that God can keep him safe from the threat of an angry woman? No comments. Something's happened to Elijah. Well, I think what's happened to Elijah is many things, but he's certainly taken his eyes off God. Certainly the, his ministry has captured him. I mean, there's got to be a lot of adrenaline flowing through him, but something happens, and all of a sudden he goes from the heights of glory to the depths of despair. He ends up with a death wish. God, just kill me. What can happen to us in this stage of faith as we come to Christ and we're learning and we're growing and now we're beginning to use our gifts and good things are happening? What can happen? I just want to say as I, as I move into this, 
I might say some things that are challenging. I will likely step on some toes. Um, hopefully, God will bring conviction, but God will not bring condemnation. So don't hear condemnation. What I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes, I have experienced personally, either in real form or in temptation form. So I'm not just spitting it out at you. This is something we're all prone to when Jesus has got a hold of us and we're going for it and the enemy's still doing his trick to steal, kill, and destroy in the kingdom. So let this be an invitation into an awareness, maybe an empowerment in your life, into acceptance, and certainly a prompting to action. What can happen as we're following Jesus and doing what he's called us to do? This can happen in any stage and place in our lives. We can sometimes get confused. God, I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought you called me. I thought you said for sure if I came here, you would bless me. Anyone identify with that one? I thought, I thought you said, and then confusion comes because our life doesn't work out the way we thought it was going to work out. Insecurity. Lord, did I really hear you? Fear. God, I know you did that, but can you do this? I mean, I know you took care of me back then, but this seems big, God. Somehow bigger than you. We can become, uh, I guess, prone to our own exhaustion, our own energy. Um, our desire to serve God is bigger than our ability in the body to care for ourselves and to do his work. We can get desperate. Anyone ever experienced the imposter syndrome? <laughs> Come on. If you don't put your hand up, you're an imposter. I'm just kidding. The imposter syndrome is when you get up in front of people <laughs> and you think to yourself, what the heck am I doing here? Or I don't know what I'm doing. Followed with a side order of, what if they all realize that I don't know what I'm doing? That's the imposter syndrome. We've all felt that at times. We can become driven in our ministry and serve compelled by fear, performance, and the expectation of others. I'm just saying it can happen. We're moving along and all is, and all is well, and then all of a sudden, this, this new compulsion. We're not, no longer serving for the love of God, but it's for the, the expectation of people. And it can be so subtle. I know this. So subtle. We can start to perform because of the expectation of others. And rather than leading from the powerful, peaceful calling of God, we begin to either serve people for people's sake or we can move into pride. Like, and I know this one too, like, man, I got it going. I got my degrees. I, you know, when I get up and do things, good things happen. And, you know, thanks, God, you're really great. But I think, I think I've got something special. That's absolutely true until that becomes your motivating force. You have something special. The, the King of Kings lives in you. The Spirit of God that brought Jesus back from the dead is within you. But it's He's within you doing His work through you. It's not you. It's Him and you and you and Him. It's crucial at this place in the, on, on the, in the journey of the soul to recognize who's doing the work and who's being used lovingly in the process. We can be susceptible to burnout. I don't want to tell you how many times I've been on the edge of in, passed through, circled back to burnout. 
There can be a significant roadblock to thriving spiritual health at this stage of the journey. Some of it you'll see in, um, in Elijah. Certainly you see in the disciples and even in the temptations of Jesus. And the roadblock is this, false identity. We can attempt to prove our value or gain value or find acceptance with people or God outside of God's calling or his redemptive work in our life. We can be motivated by something other than God loves me, he's accepted me, he's gifted me, I'm his. We can all of a sudden be motivated by all sorts of things to try to make a name for ourselves. Satan is the father of lies and he attacks us to defame our identity and and he wants to usurp our gifts. So um, probably some of us have experienced these temptations. The three big lies that can foster a false identity. We see, see these in the scripture. Henry Nouwen, the uh, Catholic author who died maybe 10, 15 years ago, writes about these. Here are the three lies that can become a false self and thwart a healthy life in this stage of the journey, responsibilities and ministry. And here they are quickly. I, I am what I have. I am what I do. Or I am what other people say or think about me. Those are lies from the enemy. If, if, if any of those sound familiar, that's the bad guy talking. I am what I do, I am what I have, or I am what others think and say about me. I am what I have. Maybe it's physical possessions, desirable spiritual gifts, a certain status or achievements. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's within the church. Like, you know, I've got this role. I can be tempted to believe my identity comes from what I have. I am what I do, maybe because I've been teaching this class for a long time, or I've been leading sozos. I'm just trying to hit hard here. This is us. This isn't them. I'm a prayer person. I'm a worship leader. I give generously. I I make meals for people. I, I do all sorts of things. Why do I do that at some point? Because I am what I do. That's a temptation. That's a lie. I am what others think or say about me. You know, I'm known by people. I tell you, this is a big temptation as a pastor. You know, I've I've now been in the city as a pastor for 20 years, so to walk around pastoral places, many people, they say, oh, the vineyard, you know. I always wonder what they're thinking. (laughs) They say, oh, the vineyard. Sometimes they're like, whoa. (laughs) Amazing people have come through the vineyard. Amazing people are in the vineyard. God's used our church, our little quirky, broken church. God's used it because he loves this body. And sometimes it can be tempting for me to say, yeah, vineyard. And everything good that you think about that, you should think about me. And anything bad, that's the other people. (laughs) Do you know what this feels like? I am what others think or say about me. I look good on social media. Got lots of activities and achievements on my resume. My, My LinkedIn account is, you know, cruising. I get, I don't even know how that works. I just wrote it down. All those things are good things. To be spoken well of is not a bad thing. To, to post things on social media, none of that's bad. Until that becomes your source of identity. Until you are not the one that Jesus loves, you are the one who has or does or is spoken of in this way or that way. So what if we find ourselves there in this stage of the journey 
responsibilities in ministry, using our gifts, and we feel active in ministry, serving God, but we're bowing to one of these idols. I am what I have, I am what I do, or I am what others think of me. The way through these three lies is one truth. I am the beloved. That's not me, Randy. That's every single one of us called by God, loved by Jesus, and redeemed. We are the beloved of God. That's our identity. Your identity is the one loved by God. Your identity is not what you have. It's not what you do. It's not what others think of you. Your identity is you are the beloved of God. Jesus was tempted by these three lies. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 3. I won't put it on the screen. You may be familiar. Jesus has not yet been in ministry. Um, he's going to John the Baptist to be baptized. If you're going to be baptized, go to a guy named John the Baptist. So he's going to his cousin John to be baptized. And um, and uh, he, he goes into the water. He goes down. He's baptized. When he comes back up, Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has done no ministry, no miracles that we know of, nothing recorded at this point, except he astounded the, you know, the teachers at age 12. Awesome. But no big things that we know of. And the Lord speaks from heaven and gives Jesus in front of everyone his identity. This is my son. This is my beloved. This is the one in whom I'm well pleased. He is mine. That's Jesus' identity being secured. About four seconds later, one verse later in uh, Matthew chapter Four, the enemy comes. Right after his baptism, Jesus is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit where he is tempted by the enemy so that we could recognize that we go through no temptation that Jesus hasn't gone through, dealt with, understood, and defeated. He's our model. He, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. God speaks his identity, and, he, and it's all solid. And then he goes out into the, into the wilderness, and the enemy says these things to him. Well, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, do you hear it? First thing the enemy does is attack the identity of Jesus. If you're the Son of God, why don't you do something awesome? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? In other words, do something to prove who you are. The temptation, I am what I do. The enemy says, okay, that one didn't work. Uh, takes him up to the highest temple, says, throw yourself off from here. Do an amazing act because the Bible says the angels will gird you up so you won't strike your foot against the stone. Do you hear it? Prove yourself. Prove yourself, Jesus. To me, the enemy. Jesus says, absolutely not. And finally, he says, as if he had it to give, the enemy says, I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you everything. Just this one thing, just you know, bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship me. And I'll give you everything as if you are what you have. Jesus' identity gets attacked on, on all three of these levels. Tempted to go down that track just like we're tempted. 
it's just a point that came to me. I, I think it's true, but you can discern it for yourself. When I've heard that, that passage spoken on, so often I've said, and you know what Jesus did is he fought the enemy with the Scripture, and I think he did. I think it's amazing that to each of those temptations, Jesus brings a Scripture. But I don't think it was the Scripture that saved Jesus from falling into sin. I don't think it was just knowing the right thing to do or to say. I think it was knowing who and whose he was, his identity that strengthened him. Because he was firm in his identity as the beloved. He could use the tool of the scripture, not shaken and say, you know what, I'm not falling for that, enemy. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. And I am not what others think of me because I've proved myself. The scripture's powerful. Memorize it. Use it. Awesome. But it's identity. It's what God has said about me in the scriptures that brings strength in this part of the journey. We've got to know who we are. It's one of the reasons that the next couple of years we're pouring ourselves as a church into one part of our vision that everybody would know who they are in Jesus, that we know what we have to give away because identity is what secures us from walking down the, li the lies of the enemy. If Jesus faced the temptation, we will face the temptation. If Jesus could resist the temptation to identify himself and find his security and his identity and what he had and what he did or how he could prove himself and what others would say, if he resisted it, then we can because he did it by the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that we have. For a couple of years now, I've been, as I talk to people, and because I learned this, I don't know how many years ago, I've been using a, a, a graphic that helps me understand the difference between kind of going down the, the, the world's way of works in understanding who I am and God's way of grace. And so it should come on the screen there. The cycle of works and the cycle of grace. And if you just keep that up for a while there, Jen, I want to talk through that briefly. Every single one of us will likely recognize ourselves at times on the left there. Starting up on the top left, we work. We do something. We think that from doing something, we will gain value. If I work hard for God, if I work hard in the church, if I really, you know, memorize my Bible, if I do, 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 if I work, then I'll be valuable. And once I'm valuable to people, then what will happen? They will accept me. If I have worth and value, then they'll really want me. And once they show me how much they love me and want me and how valuable I am, what am I going to do then? I'm going to keep working. <laughs> because i got to keep working to prove myself to be valuable so that I can be accepted, so that I can keep working. Do you see why I call that the cycle of works? That is the recipe for burnout. I don't recommend it. I recommend the cycle of grace. It's the same stuff, it just has a different source and a different direction. The cycle of grace begins with Ephesians 1.6. You are accepted in the beloved Jesus. Guess what, Merlin? You are the beloved. Chris, you are the beloved. Sarah, you are the beloved. That's where it starts. You have been accepted before you did anything, when you were doing wrong things, in spite of doing wrong things. God accepted you because Jesus took your place on the cross. 
And now with Jesus inside you, he looks at you and says, I love you like I love my own son, in whom I am well pleased. From acceptance, Ephesians 1.6, we receive our value. How important are you? Well, God died for me. How important are you? The king of the universe sacrificed himself for me. How important are you? God purchased my life with his. I've been accepted by him. And as a result of that, I am fully loved, valued. I am worth everything. I mean, I I believe it's true. If you were the one person on the planet, Jesus would have given his life for you. And from that place of acceptance and value, now that we know who we are and we know whose we are, what do we do? We go for it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not as a result of works so that anyone would boast about it. We, we love that one for salvation, but Ephesians 2, 10 says this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he pre- prepared beforehand in advance for us to walk in. We don't walk in those good gifts for acceptance or love. We walk in them from acceptance and love. This is life-changing. This is life-saving. This is ministry and church and relationship-saving news right here. And it's right here in the scriptures waiting for us to grab onto it. I am not what I have. I'm the beloved. I'm not what I do. I'm the beloved. I'm not what you or anyone else thinks or says about me. I'm the beloved. That's the security of my identity. Now, if you're in this stage on the journey and you're just into it and you're all excited, don't let me get you scared. (laughs) Just be aware. If God's given you gifts, go for it. Believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Take risks. I mean, go for it. Just be aware. The enemy hasn't stopped messing with you just because God now owns you. We don't want to give him a lot of time, but we've got to be aware of what he's doing because he will lie to us, and we're humans who are susceptible to that. So be aware of the, the dangers. Don't lose yourself in your ministry. Don't lose yourself in your work for God. Your ministry doesn't define who you are. Who you are manifests itself in what you do in Christ. See the warning signs of burnout. In my notes, uh, probably tomorrow morning, I'll get up on the, on the internet, some resources if you're wondering if I'm in burnout or if I'm in this stage and don't know what to do. Or just come talk to me and I'll talk to you for months about what this feels like. Jesus' words in John 15, Hear Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. True success in ministry equals abiding in acceptance. True success in ministry is not about how many people you lead to Christ, how many people you serve, how many prophetic words you give, how many miracles, how sacrificial. True success in ministry, at least according to Jesus, is abiding. And I would say abiding 
in his acceptance of you, that intimate relationship. I'll quote a famous person who said just yesterday to me, her name happens to be Jane, her last name happens to be the same as mine. Exact quote. If I don't have time to be with Jesus, then I don't have time to bear fruit for Jesus. That's good. Another person smarter than me said the same, a similar thing. This is uh, M. Robert Mulholland. He was a spiritual formation pastor in, um, at Asbury Theological Seminary. He says this, We can expend amazing amounts of energy and resources to be in the world for God. But you see, we are called to be in God for the world. It's a big difference. I mean, it's like, it's like Mike, Mike Bickle says, you got to keep the first commandment in the first place, right? First, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then it's love your neighbor as yourself. I think C.S. Lewis said, if you don't love God, you're no good to your neighbor. If you don't love your neighbor, you're no good to God. He was extreme. But do you get the point? We are not in the world for God as if he just sends us off as his emissaries to use us and dispense of us. We are in God, first and foremost, for the sake of the world. So that we first encounter the love and the power of God, right? And then we give it away to the world. From God within us to the world. There is a way to thrive and be healthy in this stage, in case I've scared the bejeebers out of you. Find a healthy rhythm in your life. Be honest with yourself, with God, and with others about your abilities. Don't lie to yourself. And if you love people around you, don't allow them to lie to you about, oh, I can handle it. It's good. Oh, I don't need anything. You know that one? Oh, I'm fine. Your first call is intimacy with Jesus. Jesus loves you for who you are because he made you and died for you. He doesn't love you for what you do. It's so important that we understand this, especially as, in my own humble opinion, a move of God is coming. God, I think Bickle says also in Kansas City, he says, lovers do more than workers. Lovers get more done than workers. You love God with all your heart. His love pours in you and out, and all sorts of things happen. If we're just working for God, we burn out. Take some time rehearsing your belovedness. I mean, rather than getting, it, getting in front of the mirror and, you know, looking at yourself and saying, mm, you got it, you know, or whatever you might do. <laughs> you can imagine me doing that a lot, right? You, you could look into the mirror and say, I'm the beloved. Maybe you'll see the face of Jesus looking back at you, and you'll just hear his voice say, you're the beloved. That's your identity. Realize that you're not alone. If you're in ministry and you're starting to burn out, and some of the things I talked about, you're feeling you are not alone. One of the huge lies of the enemy is to come to the believer who's really doing things for God and say, you know what, just like Elijah, you're the only one. And we can fall into that place of self-pity, I'm the only one. You know that feeling? But if I don't do this, who will? Maybe we've forgotten God. I'm not saying be irresponsible. That's not my point. I'm just saying, remember, there is a great shepherd 
and we are not him. We serve him. He serves us. He washes our feet. He cares for our bodies. He loves and forms our souls. Remember, this is a process, not for perfection. It's a map for a journey. It's insight for an adventure, and Jesus is leading. So I guess I would just urge you here at the end, keep your eyes on Jesus. If, I think it was um, Charles Spurgeon, great preacher of the 19th century, 19th century, some century, his call to ministry was this. The Lord, he saw a, a scripture verse and it said, King James Version, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. In other words, I'm going to use you, but don't seek the great things I'm going to do. Seek me. And when Spurgeon was able to seek God, God was able to use Spurgeon. Seek God. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's already done the work. He's already won the race. He's already completed the redemption in your life. We are literally, by his strength, walking it out. I'll close with Matthew 11. These are the words of Jesus to people in any stage, but certainly in this stage. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If your burden feels heavy, right now, in your ministry life, you probably have something to talk about with Jesus, the great shepherd. If your burden feels heavy, I'm, I'm not blaming you, I'm not condemning you, I'm inviting you to talk to Jesus, who says, my burden is easy. Maybe his invitation to come, to abide, to, main, to remain, to rest. Maybe he wants to talk to you about his leadership in your life what his yoke looks like. Maybe he wants to talk to you about his gentleness or his humility. If that speaks to your driving and your pushing and your striving and your straining and your need to prove, then talk to Jesus about that. He will lovingly correct you. Let's stand. And if I could ask the ministry team to come forward, a couple from the ministry team. Again, there's personal uh, prayer art over to my right, your left. Also, there are books for sale that are following some of this. If you got a book, picked one up and didn't pay for it, you can pay for it today or you can purchase one today. In our time of ministry, here's, I just want to ask these questions. What is it that you need to talk to Jesus about? Now, maybe it's not even related to this message. You want to talk to Jesus about healing in your body or a relationship or, or your soul then I just ask you, come forward. Let somebody pray for you. Come now. Let somebody pray for you. If you are in need right now, any type of need, we want to pray for you. What do you need to talk to Jesus about? Do you need to talk to him about your relationship with sleep, your relationship with rest, with Sabbath, with real recreation? Do you need to talk to Jesus and learn from him how to minister with him in his power, not just for him. Does Jesus want to talk to you about gentleness with yourself, with others, or humility? 
I'm going to pray for us. And I just ask anyone who wants, come forward. We would love to pray for you. Holy Spirit, come now, I ask, and do your work in your people. And I ask God for conviction. And I ask for comfort. And I ask for empowerment. I ask, Lord, that you speak to these, your beloved, about their rest, about their souls, about humility, about gentleness. Jesus, teach your beloved this morning. Just wait a minute. If you're here this morning and this all this talk of Jesus and the soul, you don't you don't know what that means and you don't know they even have a relationship with God, I'd ask you to come forward and I would love to talk and pray with you. As we close, let me just bless you with the good news of the scripture from the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.